All right, so today, actually, hold on, let me pull this guy up here, get my microphone. Wow, the fancy mic, man. I know, man. I spent good money on this, so I got to make sure I use it. <laughs> yeah, you got a, you got a good radio voice, actually. My radio Thanks. voice is not too hot. No, man, you got the radio voice. It's there. Like I, I got the Apple earbuds in today, though. They, <laughs> Hey, we'll we'll make do. But today on the show, we got Ben Yanes here, the man, the myth, the legend. Want to talk about <laughs> want to talk about some hypertrophy, biomechanics, all that good stuff. Man, I like your page a lot. I think you're no no bullshit, no nonsense. This is also your invitation to cuss freely on the show. <laughs> so perfect. I, I actually forgot to ask that in like the uh, the the pre-show banter so i'm happy you right. clarified that you're you're good to go man uh, we'll put okay. the, the e for explicit on it so but yeah man how about you just hit us with your the elevator pitch tell us who you are and uh, we'll get into it yeah so uh my name is ben i'm a personal trainer in the city currently uh i do online coaching mostly for powerlifters but also for people who have hypertrophy related goals as you briefly mentioned and uh yeah i've been i've been working as a personal trainer or i've been working in training for the last uh, four years or so, I started when I was like, I think 17, 18, officially working with just kids at my, uh, at my college and in my high school. And then, you know, beyond that, I, uh, I graduated, moved into the city pretty quickly. I had a nice turnover just because, you know, I was able to do a lot of online stuff. So I had the financial freedom to do that. And then just picked up a lot of in-person clients here in New York. And I've been in New York since. So it's been about a year now, a little bit more. Um, of actually working with a ton of people in person, uh, you know, especially since COVID started to clear up and everything. Um, and then lastly, and I think, you know, this is kind of what I enjoy most is like having these kinds of discussions and just working with, you know, coaches from all over just online and, and education. And, um, you know, I've done, uh, I've done a couple of seminars, one last summer with, uh, with Connor Harris, who I'm sure many people listening to this are, you know, aware of and know. And, uh, so yeah, I plan to get into, you know, more so the educational side of things. I think the older that I get, I do enjoy the personal training because, you know, it's great to have hands-on application. Um, but education and talking about all this stuff is kind of where my, my bigger passions lie. So I think eventually, you know, I'll, I'll shift more in that direction as I, you know, continue to train people. I think I'll always want to do things in person, but, um, you know, moving towards seminars and online courses and all that kind of stuff is, is the direction I see myself heading. So yeah, that's, I would say that's the elevator pitch. Um, I love getting, you know, nerdy about this, this kind of stuff. So um, I'm excited for, you know, this conversation. Did you ever think, you know, like when you were younger, like coming up and, you know, get through high school, all that stuff, like, would you, were you always wanting to go the more education route or did you even want to get into personal training or is that something that you just kind of fell into? Yeah. So the, it's funny. I was having this uh, conversation with a client yesterday and I definitely feel like I fell into the personal training side of things. And I never expected to become as interested um, intellectually as I am in just any topic really in general, because when I was younger, so I have two older brothers, so I'm the baby of the family. Um, and both of them are like wicked smart, like like high, high level college engineer, you know, teacher now. And, you know, both of them were very, um, I'll say adept in the way of just, you know, understanding how, how school worked and working hard in school and, um, absorbing topics easily. And obviously they worked hard, but they were more naturally gifted, I would say than I was and, and all things intellectual. So I always, you know, had that complex growing up where I was like, yeah, my brothers are better than I am. Um, and when I was starting to learn this stuff and, you know, I, cause I think it always, that's kind of how it starts is like people when they're young, younger, start to get interested in things. And then they realize like, without even knowing it, that, um, you know, they can help people with the things that they're interested in potentially. And so, you know, when I stopped playing sports end of high school and I started lifting, I realized that like a bunch of my friends would be asking me questions and I didn't really know what I was doing like in high school, but. Um, it was cool to be on the other side of that and, and answering those kinds of questions. And I found that like the more information that I knew, the more that I could help, you know, my friends. And um, so I think I, you know, it was kind of twofold. Number one, it was like, Hey, I realized I could help people with this information and it could be useful. But, you know, second, I could kind of satisfy that, like, 
that gap in my life that was like, I was just never really into school. I was never really interested in the topics that I was learning. And then all of a sudden, it's like I found this thing that I loved that I could read about and listen to, uh, you know, and watch different, you know, courses and seminars about. And, you know, so I really, really did a deep dive early on in, in college. And I took a few courses specific to anatomy and biomechanics and stuff. And that's really when it when it took off. But um, I think that I always kind of viewed the personal training thing as just, um, you know, an avenue through which I could apply what I was learning uh, in the same way that I did when I was in high school and, and early college and those kinds of things. So the personal training thing was kind of like a side effect almost of just having information and being able to help people with the information and then realizing that I could, you know, I could help people be that person for other people. Like that was what intrigued me the most. So just, you know, being able to coach coaches now, uh, especially is like one of the most, uh, you know, satisfying, gratifying things to me to be able to do. Nice. Oh, that's interesting, especially with, I, I was in the same boat, like school just never vibed. I, yeah. I graduated high school with like a 2.57. Nice. <laughs> yeah, Solid. it was super, super good. But, you know, I, I had my friends that were always, you know, they crush it. Like they just knew how to take the tests, all that. And I'd look at a test and be like, I could care less about this. Like, yeah. well, SATs, ACTs, man, yeah. those are rough. Right. And, you know, college really wasn't that much different. Um, so I did better in college, way better in college, at least. But, yeah. you know, it's the idea that there's different types of intelligence. And I think, too, just finding oh, something that you like and then that actually allows for you to dive into it and then learn how to study and learn how to become intelligent in a way <laughs> versus you know if you look at for example when I was like in college I took these physics like a physics course and I did not understand a single thing about it I was like this sucks I hate this I'm not good at it at all <laughs> but then I took my first biomechanics course and I was like oh my god like this makes so much sense to me. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm, I was lifting at the time and I was just completely broing out in the gym. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> like lever arms, that makes sense. Like I get this. Like, and Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The difference between me getting a C minus in physics and then an A plus in biomechanics, it's still the same sort of concepts, but it's just the application to it. So um, yeah, that's just a little, side, little side tangent, I, but yeah, and just to kind of, uh, you know, add on to that, I think that people view in general intelligence as this like generalized thing, but I would almost make it analogous to strength in that when you're discussing anything related to strength, you're discussing it in the context of a specific skill, right? So you say, oh, that person's strong, but then you have to ask, well, who are they strong relative to and what are they strong in? Like, are, are you talking about being strong in a back squat? Are you talking about being strong in a biceps curl? Like, what are you talking about? And then, you know, I think intellect works the same way where, yeah, you can be someone who knows, you know, a little about a lot of things. And so you're, you're, you know, vastly more educated even than just the average person on like a lot of topics. So when you meet those kinds of people, you're like, oh my God, this person knows so many things. But in reality, maybe their, you know, maybe their interests lie more generally in just learning about new topics. And that on its own is like a specific avenue. But then, you know, it's, it's more obvious in, in things like learning about biomechanics and physics and application to exercise, because it's like one topic. But if you ask me any sort of question about like environmental sciences, I'd be like, hold, I have no idea what you're fucking talking about. Like, yeah. so in that sort of a way, I think intellect is misunderstood in that just like any sort of skill, it's like almost a skill on its own to know anything about, about anything. And it just requires practice. And, you know, the requisite thing for that is, is just having the, uh, you know, the interest in the first place. Right. It, I like that idea of just it being analogous to training. I think this is mm -hmm. a good segue because this is a concept I've been thinking about. I'm curious your, your take on it. So you had mentioned your, your older brother's and, you know, they were a little bit more gifted, you would say, um, yeah. with some of these things, whereas like you finally found something that you're interested in, and then you're able to sort of flex that muscle, train it, um, get better at it, which was enjoying biomechanics. Um, when getting into, so do you utilize like wide versus narrow infrasternal angles and that in your programming for the most part? So I yeah, guess that's, so... that's a good question to start with. Like, kind of. <laughs> yeah. 
So, you know, I got into the whole expansion compression Bill Hartman model uh, a while back. And I went through that whole, um, you know, I I went through a bunch of different courses. I took, um, you know, Connor's course, obviously. I took Alex Effer's course. I learned a lot from Bill personally because I was able to go on all those calls. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of came back around full circle and like took a big step back. And I was like, you know, what are, what are the things that I'm currently missing? Because I started to feel comfortable and I was like, this is not good. I'm, I'm feeling comfortable with this information. So, you know, Bill's model, I think is juxtaposed very clearly by just the typical standard mechanical model of, of movement, which doesn't take into consideration the, the different things that Bill necessarily does. But what you find when you look into both of those things is that there are a lot more similarities, I think, than people realize. And so when you're talking about like narrow versus wide ISAs, I think a previous span a couple of years ago would have been like, yes, that's the thing. Like, I, that's the thing that I start with. But now it's more just like a, a smaller piece to the puzzle that I think I usually gain information on as I observe people either in person or online if I'm seeing them, you know, through video or whatever. So I don't make any assumptions anymore about anyone until I actually see them move. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make when they start to learn a lot of this stuff is like, they'll, they'll, you know, make these assumptions that someone has to have, you know, 70 degrees of internal rotation at their shoulder lying supine on the table. And it's like, what happens if that person just structurally is never going to, you know, be able to, to acquire that range? Like what then? And so, you know, when you work with real people, and you see the way that they move and, you know, you can adjust things based on, you know, what you're, what you're seeing in real time. That to me is like infinitely more important than, you know, trying to get their, their internal rotation measurement up by 10, 20 degrees, especially if they're not in pain. So to actually, you know, answer the question, get to the question. I think that it's something that I take into consideration. So if someone has like a, you know, let's say a narrow and external angle, they're going to be an individual to me that structurally is going to have more bias in the way of using, let's say like anterior delts in a press, they're going to have less leverage from, uh, you know, their pecs just naturally being that they're probably not going to be as thoracically extended. And, you know, those are things that you can take into consideration when you're trying to select an exercise. So if I know that someone has a tendency to want to like over protract and kind of, you know, maybe do a little bit of a, of a crunching strategy when they're pressing, I know that that's potentially because of their physical structure. And I'm not going to assume automatically that, that that's a bad thing. And on the flip side, you know, someone else who's super wide and, um, you know, really, really built like a big bodybuilder, maybe all they feel is pecs and maybe they never feel their delts. Um, and, and, you know, those are, are structural reasons that you can, um, you know, use as reference for maybe an explanation as to why someone is, is experiencing something or maybe how or why they're having trouble experiencing something that, you know, they're not uh, right. or that you don't want rather. So I think that I use it now to inform, uh, you know, the, the smaller reasons why, but I do not use it as like an absolute measurement that will guide me regardless of who the person is, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. No, I, I look at it in the, the same light. Uh, I am curious as, you know, I am going to make, have you make an assumption to some degree. Um, but when it comes to the current clientele that you have, you said you work with powerlifters and bodybuilders. Do you yeah. see within those populations uh, primarily more wides versus narrows? Yeah, generally speaking, I definitely do. Um, I think people who get into, it's kind of like the chicken or the egg, right? Um, but I, I think generally speaking, people who are wider are people who want to, uh, you know, compete in powerlifting because in some way they're probably naturally a little bit stronger, you know, yeah. equating everything else, which is, would be impossible, but assuming we could, right. um, yeah, I would say the vast majority of people that I personally work with are wides, but, uh, that's just online. So in person, I would actually say it's the opposite. Most people that I work with are narrows who I see from a, from a general population uh, standpoint who are just looking to either, you know, lose weight or, you know, gain weight, get bigger, stronger, whatever. Yeah. It, and this helps me kind of get around to the original question I was going to um, going to ask you, but, you know, 
I've just been thinking about this concept of wide versus narrow because on the same way, like a lot of the power lifters I see, they're all wide and they're just kind of like genetically gifted to be good at that sport in a way. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, can narrows actually be good at powerlifting or <clears throat> is it that the, the wides discovered that they're good at lifting before <laughs> narrows and then they've just spent more time doing it. So they got, you know, they got the jump on them in a way and they're genetically yeah. gifted. Whereas a narrow is like, right. I want to do this. I got to work twice as hard to be good at this sport to some degree. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. I think generally that most of like the world record holders that you're going to see, if they weren't completely wide when they started lifting, like they probably are at that point, obviously yeah. you can't like, you know, completely 180 or structure to any significant degree, like to some degree. Yes. But I think that usually when you see narrow lifters who are um, gifted in, in powerlifting, it's usually just because of their, their leverages. So for instance, you'll see a good amount of like lankier um, skinnier lifters who are really good at like sumo deadlifts because their torso compared to their arms is basically like miniature. So their arms basically just droop to the floor and they can pull the bar like four inches, but then, you know, ask that same person to bench or to squat and, you know, it becomes problematic. Right. I don't subscribe to the idea generally that like you can't be strong if you're an arrow, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but those are definitely people who have to like work a little bit harder and for a little bit longer periods of time to be able to get to the same point. I think just, you know, structurally as like, you have to put on a lot of muscle to, to actually physically become wide if you're a narrow. And I don't yeah. think that's something that many coaches actually take into account is like, what is the general structure of the person that I'm working with? Because you can't approach programming the same way for both people. Yeah, no, that, I totally agree with that. And I think it'd be good to, I, I'm curious your, if you have any tips for some of these narrow lanky people <laughs> like you yeah. know say like myself like i'm a narrow um mm -hmm. definitely you know i did work out with some of these guys who eh, back in the day you know i can make the assumption now that they're probably like a wide infrastructural angle and if for those listening and you're new to the whole concept it's basically you know i say a narrow infrastructural angle think of someone who's like a kangaroo they're bouncy they're potentially lanky something like that whereas a wide infrastructural angle that's someone who's built like a gorilla in a way like they just grind through weight they can lift heavy they're just gifted for that so um but yeah i'm curious what if you have any tips for some of these narrow guys who are like man i just want to pack on size i want to do all this stuff like what have you found successful for the that that population yeah so i think a lot of issues have come in powerlifting from just and not that they were you know necessarily bad but from like old school lifters who have always gone with this idea of being as specific as is humanly possible in every single workout and every single mesocycle at every point in the year. And the reason that people assume that like, this is the way that you should train for powerlifting is because of social media, like hundred percent, because all you see high level lifters doing on social media is posting big lifts. Like why would they post anything else? So you, you know, if, if all you see is big lifts and singles and doubles and triples, and like, you know, these high level powerlifters are people who are also happen to be jacked, then you must logically make the assumption that like, all I need to do is just, you know, do the big lifts, be specific about what I'm doing and, you know, I'll get bigger and I'll get stronger. And then most people find out that one of two things happens when they do that. The first thing is they either get hurt, like just doing the big three lifts all the time, um, or they just don't get any bigger. So they don't, you know, their progress they're probably, they make some, some, some form of progress just from skill acquisition and, you know, just actually training the pattern, but they don't actually uh, find themselves making consistent progress long-term. And I think a big part of that is just this whole hypertrophy conversation. That's what it comes back to. Um, so the way that I actually train, like a majority of my people now, and I say majority, like, I don't know, 60, 70% is like a lot of their work is just pure hypertrophy based bodybuilding work. And so I'm trying to, and a lot of this is, you know, there's, there's obviously a give and take with clients because they'll want to do certain things. Like people want to comp squat, people want to deadlift off the floor, people want to bench press. So, you know, I always make sure to, to find some sort of balance of giving one what they want in that regard. 
but then also just giving them a ton of like a hypertrophy based work to where the goal isn't necessarily to uh, directly at least improve the skill, uh, you know, like you would in, in the SBD, but rather just to be very, very specific about what tissue we're trying to make a limiting factor uh, and being very, very specific about the way we set up exercises to make sure that that happens. So, you know, for example, I might, I'll just give a sample like upper body day that I'll just draw up in my head. Like maybe someone does a top set of, you know, tempo bench, they do a set of three and then they do something that's typical of like, you know, USAPL powerlifting where you do like three to four back down sets at a lighter intensity. That, that should take them no more than like 15 minutes if they're doing it properly, if they're not horribly out of shape. Then the last like 45 minutes hour of the session, I'm going to give them, you know, um, dumbbell bench press. I'm going to give them uh, cable presses, cable press arounds, uh, you know, lat pull downs fully supported either with like a chest pad or, you know, maybe they're doing it at an angle where they don't need that. They can just lean back. Basically, I'm going to pick what people would typically describe as just pure bodybuilding movements, and I'm going to have them, you know, work really, really hard at those movements to, you know, pack on as much, you know, size as they as they possibly can. And I think people don't realize the value in that because when you do get bigger, like people, there's this whole discussion around people getting bigger versus stronger. It's like for 99.9 repeating percent of the population, those two things are exactly the same. So if you're getting bigger and you're training like even like two sets of the main lift, it, there's going to be a, like immediate carryover. There, there's no way that there can't be if you're, if you're getting bigger and stronger. So um, to actually answer the question now, I would say that my, you know, my number one uh, piece of advice for like the narrower guys is make like 80 to 90% of your actual work, work that is fully stabilized externally, work that is, um, you know, essentially picking exercises that are that make creating a limiting factor in a specific tissue very very easy so you know a leg extension is a great example of like how you would make your quads a limiter versus doing a squat where you know a squat people people typically think of as like a closed chain exercise but a squat is actually an open chain exercise because there's 20 different ways that you can do a squat your feet are on the floor, but you could push your knees forward. You can push your hips backwards. Your knees could go in, your knees could go out. There's a thousand different things that could happen. So rather than picking the squat, you know, to, to serve as like a, a quad stimulus for someone, maybe I'll just put them on a leg extension so that I know exactly what I'm getting out of that exercise. And it also makes programming a little bit more, you know, easy to organize and a little bit more predictable. So, um, yeah, just making the majority of exercises like set up specifically to you. Um, rather than picking exercises that are generalized and in their adaptation a lot of times. And a lot of times, you know, the goal of those exercises isn't to create a limiter in a tissue. It's to use as many tissues as possible to move the most amount of weight as possible. And then right. just the last thing I'll say, because uh, it just popped into my head is like, I think where people go wrong with the big lifts is like, of course you could get bigger doing the main lifts, but you might have awful leverages doing the main lifts. And so the stimulus to fatigue ratio of all those things might be really, really poor for you. Like if you're, you know, a short torso, long femur individual, like good luck doing a, a squat for your quads, like good luck with that. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people I find are trying to um, fit their body to exercises rather than fitting exercises to their body, which is how you actually train muscles and not movements. Yeah. I like that. That's, that's a huge, a really good point there. That's um, cause I've, you said it perfectly. I could, I've been doing that a lot, especially with my training, but I haven't said it like that. So I'm definitely going to steal that a little bit. Um, so I appreciate it, but yeah, taking, I will say like specifically with some of the clients that I've had and some of the training that I've had them do, it's looking very hypertrophy based, um, you know, taking some of the concepts from uh, Pat Davison, for example, like he, the way he talks about hypertrophy and longevity um, in humans, like that's, that's the way to go in my opinion. But I am curious to see. So I'll have these people that they want to hit the big lifts, like you're saying, but it's like, all right, you're going to do these other accessory movements that are actually going to target the tissue that we want. But I've been utilizing a pre-fatigues. So for example, you had the leg extensions 
but someone still wants to hit the big lifts, but I know mechanically, like it's just going to be terrible and not as mm -hmm. they're not going to have a good time. So rather than letting them go crazy and load up a ton of weight and potentially, you know, just put a unnecessary pressure through the knees or the back or whatever's going on because the leverages are off pre-fatigue them, let them go after that big lift and just do whatever they want in a way, let them feel strong to some degree, mm -hmm. less yep. weight. It doesn't hit the joints as hard. I don't, I'm curious your take on that. If that's something you've utilized in the past. Yeah. So I use like a, I would say like a version of that. Mm -hmm. um, I would, the only, you know, issue that I would see potentially with that and people is um, them being so fatigued in one tissue or a couple tissues that, you know, it's difficult for them to actually coordinate like a motor pattern that they're used to or stronger in, right. you know, so if someone's a very quad dominant squatter, it might not be the best idea to take that tool away from them in, in the main lift sure. so much. So to the point where like, maybe they start to shift into their hips and then the pattern changes and then they get weaker, but that's mm -hmm. only one potential, um, you know, drawback of it. I could see it working really well for a lot of people. Do you think that there's um, so, potentially advantages to it to where maybe like change, you want to change a pattern? I don't know. I'm just, yeah. just kind of theoretically talking. Here, yeah. But. Yeah. So this will actually tie in nicely because, yeah. you know, the version of this that I use is basically just, I, I would honestly say 80, 70 to 80% of all, um, you know, main lift variations that I prescribe are intentionally load limiting. So, you know, load limiting being, the exercise is objectively easier, but subjectively still very difficult. So maybe I have them do uh, a tempo front squat. Maybe I have them do a high bar pause squat or a tempo bench press or a close grip, higher ref bench press, something like that. Basically just variations that are close enough to the main lift to where the pattern is extremely similar and the muscular demands are, you know, somewhat similar, but you know, they're, they're using loads objectively weights on the bar that are, that are much, much lighter. And so the, the net joint forces that you experience throughout a week, throughout a month, throughout, you know, months is, is a lot lower. So it's like, basically what you're saying is how can I find a way to create fatigue in this person so that they can lift less on the, on the right. main movement. I might just say like, make the main movement objectively more difficult from either like a tempo perspective, like I said, or just, you know, a joint leverage perspective, you know, moving from low bar to high bar, for example, uh, and a lot of people that would be much harder to, to perform the high bar squat. But ultimately, like if you can find multiple ways to do that, that work for the individual, then I don't think there's anything wrong with picking either one of those things. Um, so, you know, and, and to get to your question of like repatterning, Right. So maybe you would want to shift someone from being a very, very knee dominant squatter because they're starting to experience some sort of knee issues to maybe more hip dominant squatter. Then, you know, picking a load limiting variation might be a really, really good time to do that. Right. Maybe you prescribe, you know, tempo eccentrics and you say to this person, I really, really want you to focus on like letting your chest fall and letting your hips come back rather than shoving your knees forward. And maybe instead of using heels now, we're going to use flats. And you know, I've used uh, a lot of those kinds of, of lifts and, you know, I have some pretty strong people like that I'm, that I'm working with now that are, you know, I'm using all those kinds of variations and, you know, it's going really well. And I find that, um, you know, the more and more that people realize that they're still going to get a lot stronger on the actual competition lift, then, you know, the buying is, is comes pretty quickly from that. Um, and it's interesting too, because uh, I have a, I have had a few like uh, intakes recently with, with newer guys who are pretty strong, like guys who squat in the fives and, you know, deadlift in the sixes and, you know, which is not a, like world-class, but it's pretty strong. Um, and, you know, in the first like three or four weeks of working with me, they're hitting all these like PRs on their top sets. And the reason is simply, I think, because they're just less stressed in general. Like they're not doing things that are as difficult and they're doing things that allow them to, you know, not feel like their joints are falling apart every other week, you know, because they're, they're benching six times a week and they're low bar squatting twice a week. So um, people can see progress really, really fast. Um, even just like in that transient sort of sense by, um, you know, creating less total stress. Uh, and even though that seems intuitively like it might not work for some people, and of course it might not. Uh, it does for a lot of people because a lot of people are used to just trying to like beat themselves 
you know, into the ground. Right. Totally. Could you expand a little bit on the less total stress? Is that more specifically you're talking like joint wise, or are you also talking like environmental as well? Right. So in that specific contest context, like, let's say, you know, uh, I'm doing deadlifts and instead of doing, you know, a five by three in the competition movement at what, like 80% max, 80% of one RM, maybe instead of doing that, I do like tempo eccentric deadlifts where I give this person, I do this a lot. I'll give the person like a five second eccentric or a six second eccentric and I'll have them do like sets of two and I'll have them do like 10 sets. So, you know, normally where I'd start that variant is like a 60% one rep. So you've dropped 20% load on the bar and the total volume, it would be very difficult to measure just be, like you could count sets, but the sets clearly are not equivalent in terms of, you know, the total stress on the body, both in terms of joint forces and in terms of muscular fatigue that you would experience like in subsequent days and weeks. Um, but if you go from that competitive competition specific variant from there to that tempo variation, and you experience less total force across, like we'll just use the, the term like resistance torque across the knee, across the hip, across all the facets of the spine, then, you know, you may even be able to actually end up doing more volume of work just because you're able to recover more quickly from that lower amount of stress. And so even though it might seem like it's less total work, I think a lot of times it ends up being more because the output on their more specific sets ends up being a lot higher. So, you know, maybe on, maybe I do the deadlift variation on Monday and I do my squats on Thursday. Maybe if I do the competition deadlift on Monday, instead of the tempo deadlift, my output on Thursday for my squats ends up being lower, right? Or maybe if I do the tempo variation instead of the comp deadlift, maybe my top set on, on squats flies through the roof. And I'm actually able to recover for that session. Uh, and that's something that I learned, I think, a lot from some popular powerlifting coaches. Um, you know, Steve DeNovi is one of them. I don't know if you know him, but he coaches a lot of uh, high-level lifters. And his approach is a lot more conservative, kind of like mine is. Um, and so he'll use tons of tempo variations. He'll use tons of, uh, like I said, load-limiting uh, options that just basically allow people to get more reps in, more quality reps in through the week, as opposed to trying to just be as specific as possible. And I think that ends up tying in really, really nicely with our conversation earlier about, you know, training the bodybuilding movements, because if you choose those variations that are, you know, have less total impact on both your joints and your, and your muscles and potentially longer term your nervous system, then you end up with a situation where you actually leave more room in the tank every session to be able to go harder on those accessory based movements, which inherently are not going to be nearly as fatiguing systemically. Right. No, I, I like that a lot. I think that's a, it, that seems to be the direction a lot of people are going, hopefully, you know, I mean, granted, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm definitely within the, the echo chamber of Instagram and follow people with similar <laughs> mindsets, but yeah, you know, I'm hoping that it continues in that direction. And, you know, just the idea of you don't have to ground yourself into a pulp in order to be strong and big, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. that's not necessary. And, you know, I, it reminds me of this. I used to have this, um, he was a patient at the old clinic I worked at, but he was a ultra marathoner guys. Oh. I mean, he's, insane like just the fact that people will go out and run as many miles as they do but he had yeah. a really interesting take to it and he always said that I mean, he's like ran some really competitive races all this stuff um that he was telling me about but he said that he would always be relatively under trained in comparison to everyone else that was out there running with him mm -hmm. and i was like what do you mean he's like well i'm not gonna go out and just kill myself every day doing these trainings he's like i'm just going to like i want to feel good the month i'm before a race essentially he's like i'm not going to get any adaptation really or any significant adaptation you know working super super hard the month before a race or two weeks before a race it's like i'm going to give myself time to just relax and recover and be as fresh as possible i think that's always stuck with me and thinking that way where it's you know less is more recovery is more important than the effort that you're doing, that you're doing in a specific session. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. I think that, um, you know, how that can parallel nicely is if you ever talk to any pro bodybuilder, 
and you know you ask them about their training and how often they're sore they'll say never they're never sore and you know that and i actually train with a, an ifb pro and he's like he hasn't been sore in you know 10 fucking years or whatever it is yeah. and you know he's made progress and he's gotten bigger and he's gotten stronger and all the things that like you know you want to see out of being a bodybuilder and i think that people you know this is a whole different discussion but i think people overvalue those kinds of markers of like being super beat up and wanting to feel like really run down after a workout i think that ends up being really really detrimental to people longer term oh definitely i mean i i don't know she's probably gonna listen to this but i got a client that i did an intake form yesterday and she's like i just want to be sore in my glutes i want to feel my glutes i'm like you don't have to like you, you know just have the stimulus during the session or just, you know, yeah. hammer out your technique and you'll be fine. <laughs> but it's, it's hard, you know, again, you get on social media and you see these people talking about, you know, grind and you got to push yourself as hard as freaking possible. And it's hustle, you know, bro. You got to yeah, hustle, dude. Hustle. But it, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's longevity. Like the people who stay in the gym the longest over, you know, that pro that you're lifting with, he's been lifting for 10 years. Like that's, yeah. I'm sure he's had his injuries here and there, but like, that's, that's awesome. Like, that's crazy. Like imagine the yeah. gain someone could make just staying in the gym consistently for three years, a whole year without getting injured. Yeah. 20 years, actually, he's been training. See, like that's impressive, right? Like I he's know. doing something right. So if anyone listening <laughs> to this, you don't have to be sore to get big. <laughs> yeah. But, and I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing. That's like the ice bath thing where, like we, we got to know this at this point, like soreness could also be, you know, you could also be sore because you literally have some sort of micro tear in like your soft tissue, but you have no idea why you're sore. So assuming that like soreness is the thing, like, is it sore to the touch? Is it sore when you contract? Is it sore when, um, you know, you, you go for a walk? Is it sore when you do the exercise? Like there are a hundred different things that you could be sore for. So you know, even just making that assumption that like, you know, that a particular exercise made the muscle fiber that you wanted to grow sore. That's like a big assumption on its own. Mm -hmm. So I think people are way overconfident in their like appraisal of, you know, like what is working and what yeah. is not. So what side change your... there, but no, I like it, man. I, I like the direction we're going. So I am curious your take on muscle pumps because, you know, you got like Mike Isertel is like, you get a pump mm -hmm. in the muscle. That's a good indication of hypertrophy and growth. And uh, yeah, hopefully I'm not, you know, misconstruing that, but I, I'm curious your, your take on that versus, you know, you have like in one, which talks more technique focus versus sensation. Um, yeah. What have you found successful with that? So, you know, everyone likes a sweet, juicy pop. No doubt about it. Right. Um, but I think, you know, my stance as it currently as it currently um, stands, lies or, or I want to say, I, I'm more a proponent of like making sure that we're just setting up exercises properly and that we're not feeling any more sensation than we need with the exercise. So if a pump is a byproduct of a properly set up exercise that I know from based on what I understand and the mechanical modeling that I understand, is properly set up for me and I don't get a pump, I'm not too worried about it, right? Uh, if I'm making progress on that exercise week to week to week to week to week, I've been on the same program for literally 24 weeks now. If, I, if I'm doing a dumbbell preacher curl and I started arbitrarily with a 25 and you know now I'm at a 40, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that you know it's, I'm doing what I'm intending to with the exercise, whether I have a pump or not. Uh, the other thing about that is that I think people overvalue the subjective markers and they undervalue the objective markers. So, you know, if you're trying to get bigger and stronger, are the weights that you're lifting increasing over time? And are you getting heavier without getting too fat, presumably, um, you know, and something that I use is skin fold measurement, which is kind of an old school thing to do. But, you know, when I started this program 24 weeks ago or whatever it was, I had a certain number on my skin folds and, you know, I've gained 15 pounds in 22 weeks and I've gone in down in skin folds. So, you know, obviously there are ways that that can go wrong in terms of inconsistency with the measurements and timing and all that stuff. But I've tried to control as many objective variables as I can. And I've tried not to pay too much attention to the subjective markers of like, hey, do I feel sore in this muscle? 
do I feel a pump in this muscle every single workout? I think that also the general statement that like, if I know I'm feeling a pump in a muscle, I know it's doing its job and I'm working and I'm training it well. I think that's, um, I think that's a little bit of a, of an overconfident assumption to make. So I'll give you an example. So we have this prone hamstring curl, um, machine at our gym. It's the Kaiser one and it kind of sucks, but we use it cause it's a prone hamstring curl. And you know how on the, on all the prone hamstring curls, you have this handles, right. Mm-hmm. That you, you know, some of them you use supinated grip. Some of it's neutral. They're on the sides. Basically just in order to stabilize myself a little bit, what I'll do is I'll just pull down on the handles a little bit, get a little bit of Latin ball, man, like stabilization through the TL junction, whatever. And so when I get off of that exercise, if I'm doing four or five sets and I'm pulling like not too hard, but just hard enough, you know, I'll get up off of the exercise and I'll have a little bit of a bicep pump. But does that mean that that's a fucking good exercise, you know, for me to train my biceps? No, obviously not. I can literally get a pump, like walking up the stairs in my calves. Does that mean that I should walk up the stairs every day, like back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to grow my calves? Like, no, I'm going to do the calf raise exercises that I know over long-term tons and tons of people have done and seen progress from. So that's just kind of like, um, you know, anecdotal. And I understand that that's not obviously what people mean when they say that, but if you use that kind of a broad statement of like, if you get a pump, then good, then I'll just give you that prone leg curl example. And I'll say, well, here's one example that just poked a major hole, you know, in that rationale. So hopefully that made, made sense. Totally. I I like it because again, you're going for technique and then a pump should be not should, but probably if you set up the exercise, well, you probably will get a pump in the targeted tissue. So yeah. technique over pumps for sure. Um, and I think most people probably can make that assumption as well for the most part, but yeah, you would, um, yeah, you would hope, but <laughs> I'd like to, to kind of pivot back to some of the recovery based stuff and, and you know, mm-hmm. some things that you've learned, especially lifting with a pro and yeah, I'm curious how recovery looks for that individual as well as yourself. And, you know, you obviously are talking about having less overall stress, you know, joint stress, all that longevity with this, um, staying consistent. Where do you find to be like the most helpful, I would say environmentally, like what is it more nutrition, sleep, stuff like that. And like, do you have any like tips for like tracking that stuff? Yeah. So let's operate under the assumption that the nutrition and the sleep are both, you know, as close to practically optimized as you can get them. So what I mean by that is the biggest thing for, for sleep in general, at least for me, not that I'm a sleep expert, but it's just waking up at the same time. Um, and I find that, so Ethan, the, the guy that I, the pro that I train with, he's, he's on a very, very rigid schedule with everything that he does. And I think that, you know, just there's a ton of value in not only waking up at the same time, but obviously going to sleep at the same time, getting a minimum seven hours. For me, I prefer like eight or more. I'm like that kind of guy. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, for him, I think he only gets like six hours a night. Like he wakes up really, really early and he doesn't go to bed super late, but his, his schedule is consistent and so is his training. So all of his meals are at the same time. We work out at the same time every single day. We train for roughly the same amount of time. Just standardization is like the biggest thing that I've taken away from the process is standardizing as many things as you possibly can makes it so much easier to accurately assess whether or not what you're doing is working. You know, if you have 20,000 moving parts within a program, you know, imagine like doing a different exercise. That's why you don't do a different exercise every week. It's like you're doing a different exercise every week. You don't have anything to, you know, measure progress from. So you have no idea where you're going. So that's the big thing with both the sleep and the nutrition is standardization. And then what I would say is the most important thing, or one of the most important things, especially for people who are training as enhanced athletes is proper setup and execution of exercises. So you see a lot of um, older school bodybuilders and still people now who are not being like very specific about, you know, number one, the consistency of what exercises they execute, like they'll post a YouTube video 
every week and their leg day every week is like completely different. Right. And that's a, that's a different uh, issue, I think. But what you'll notice is that a lot of the exercises just take like Ronnie Coleman, for example, like obviously one of the goats of bodybuilding, but every single exercise he did was basically like a systemically taxing exercise, like heavy ass squats, heavy ass band of a rose, T-bar rows, like, you know, flat bench press. And, you know, that's great that that can work for Ronnie, but that's not going to work for, for most people. What's going to end up happening as we were discussing earlier is like most people are either going to fucking hurt themselves or they're going to get gassed out and, and they're not going to feel motivated to train at all. So what ends up happening with a lot of like pro bodybuilders is they take this very compoundy, systemically taxing old school approach and to, to compensate for their lack of ability to recover from that, they end up having to take way more drugs than they, than they should. And so if you take more drugs over a long period of time, you know, sure, maybe you make the progress that you want to see, but at the cost of, you know, whatever health defects can come from taking that, you know, much more or that many more drugs than you actually need. So what you tend to see with the bodybuilders who are like super smart with their exercise selection and super planned out with, you know, what tissue they're hitting and when and how often and in, in what position with what resistance profile you see that their ability to recover is, is hugely, hugely different, at least just anecdotally what I've seen in, in Ethan, especially. And, you know, to go along with that, because the recoverability from those kinds of more specific, we'll say, quote unquote, isolated exercises is much more easier to deal with than the amount of drugs that you actually need to recover from the amount of work that you're doing is, is diminished significantly. And so not only do you have to take fewer drugs, but you'll probably end up doing more specific volume for the tissues that you want to grow specifically than if you were to just like, you know, use the shotgun approach of doing the bent over rows and the bench presses and the deadlifts and all that other stuff. So to me, I think the most, you know, the biggest things apart from the sleep and the nutrition and standardizing those two things is just making sure that you actually know how to set up and execute your exercises. And, uh, you know, more importantly, you know, exactly what you're what you're training when you're training it, uh, which is obviously a lot, you know, uh, easier said than it is done because those kinds of things, even for people who are like somewhat well-versed in this stuff, uh, it can be very, very difficult to, to coach people through it. But that's kind of why he and I started training together is he knew that I had some, you know, form of competency and like coaching movement. And I knew that he had a lot of competency and getting big. So it's kind of like we, you know, we combine the two worlds and, and the product we're going to see is hopefully pretty cool. Nice. That's super cool. I like that a lot. Uh, I, I am curious. So you're talking about the recoverability and that's a really interesting example that you brought up with the enhanced athletes, but do you have any metrics that you use to really measure this recoverability and like what is probably like the, cause you know, like for example, like you can probably use different things for the individual. Like you could probably use sleep for one individual, whereas, you know, calories in and out for another, but like, what have you found to be like a really good metric for, am I working too hard? Like, is there total volumes or something that you take into account? Like, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So what I would say for me personally, the biggest thing is, can I add the incremental uh, increases in load week to week on my exercises? So that's another big thing that I've taken from, from Ethan is we stick to like between a, like a one and a half to 4% jump in load every week, um, which for certain exercises, like can be very difficult, you know? So if you have a client who's doing 10 pound dumbbells, you know, you, it's difficult to add, you know, two to 4% uh, per week to that, obviously, like the lowest you can add at least here is, is a one, 1.25, you know, pound, like mini plate. And that's what like, you know, over 10% of it, both of the dumbbells. So there are certain situations where you can't, but you know, every week for the past 24 weeks, I've literally added 2% to all of my exercises and I've not seen any sort of, you know, maybe there'll be a week here and there where, you know, my reps stay the same or my, my reps go down even, but eventually they end up moving in a direction where, you know, they're, they're back to increasing every week. And another thing is that I haven't deloaded. So, um, the way that we're training with the specificity of the exercise selection, I've not at any point felt like, Ooh, my joints are run down. Ooh, I'm not sleeping well. Ooh, it's difficult to eat. 
So in the sense of, you know, or in relation to our conversation earlier, I actually think it's almost the opposite where you can, you can rely on the objective markers first and foremost, like how am I performing objectively? You know, am I able to handle sets? Am I able to go through my sessions with, um, you know, a similar energy, but you could also assess these subjective markers of like, generally speaking, am I feeling run down? Do I have tons of soreness in my soft tissues that I don't normally have? Am I not sleeping as well? Is my mood crappy all the time? Do I find it difficult to digest? Do I find it difficult to take shits? Like all those things are, uh, you know, helpful in the context of one another, but no one thing individually, I think in that context can tell you everything. So, you know, maybe one day you don't have a great day nutritionally, you just are finding it hard to eat, but you know, you sleep well that following night and then the following day, it's totally fine. So usually speaking, what you, or usually what you'll see is a combination of all those things starting to trend in a negative direction, as opposed to just one is kind of an outlier. Um, usually when one starts to go, all the others tend to go, tend to go with it. Um, but I actually find that like performance is the last thing to, uh, performance is almost like if your performance has really started to dip, like you're way too late, you know, like all the subjective markers will tend to at least up to this point present themselves before the objective markers start to drop. So, you know, if you, if all of a sudden one week, you just shit the bed on all your exercises it's highly likely that before that point, you started to experience things that you either, you know, maybe you were unaware of how bad they were, or maybe you were just ignoring them. Yeah, totally. No, that's, that's a good reminder that, you know, there should still continue to be progress in the gym. And I, you know, it's easy. I mean, I got an aura ring on, you know, like it's easy to get mm -hmm. caught up in the hype for some of these other um, tools that yes. are out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny. Cause like I, I've never used any of those things and mm -hmm. I don't know anyone who is like super, super advanced who uses any of that stuff. Right. So like, you know, can it be nice to inform, you know, a pattern? Like absolutely hundred percent. Um, I'll probably get one eventually, like one of those war rings cause I think they're cool, but yeah. I'm not going to pick one metric or one generalized, you know, like how is my sleep and make an assumption about everything else until I know that like all those things are moving together, operating together and, you know, starting from a place that is actually standardized. Cause I think people love like, you know, the idea of the aura ring and the idea of their Apple watch counting their calories. And they view it as the one thing when in reality, like what they needed to do first was just build all the habits and standardize all the things that, you know, we've kind of talked about um, today in terms of nutrition and sleep and, just consistently consistency with your training and, and all that stuff to kind of like lay the bedrock. Yeah, totally. The, it, the discipline aspect of it is huge. And mm -hmm. that to bring it full, full circle, do you think that discipline and habits and things like this, like, is that something that you and then the pro that you've been lifting with, do you think that that is something like an intelligence, like you can naturally be gifted in that to some degree? Mm -hmm. Um, that then sets you up or is that something that's more of like a learned process? Like, would you say in the 20 years that he was lifting, like he's really seen that progress in the past 10 years or did, and it took 10 yeah. years before that to make him as good as he is now. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, based on what I know about his upbringing, he was always kind of like an adult before he was an adult. And yeah. I was, I like trended in that direction. I was never like, um, this is just one example, but I was never like, you know, one of those kids who wanted to go drink and party. I just like wanted to be an old person and stay home. And, you know, my girlfriend and I just like to watch movies at night. We don't, we don't go out, but yeah. as, as a, a, aside from that aside, um, I would say that part of it is definitely, you know, genetic. What are you predisposed to? Because I never really had to at any point concentrate on being disciplined in anything i think it was just easier for me to find things that i was interested in because when i wasn't interested in all this stuff you know it was the sports that i was playing it was the music i was involved with um and so i think a big part of it is definitely definitely you know inherent to the individual but a bigger part of it for a majority of people is just building the habit. Like I do think it's absolutely possible to build the habit and I don't necessarily, I, I, I like the idea of it being kind of that form of the specific intellect 
of being able to build, you know, habits and being able to just standardize your life in some way. Um, but I think it a lot of times just comes down to like knowing how to even approach that in the first place, which is like how, you know, coaches can be so helpful. It's not like, you know, they're going to give you the fancy pill and, you know, you're going to take the pill and all of a sudden you're going to have all the habits. It's just like a coach's job is to kind of slowly allow you or help you to build habits in a way that is like sustainable for you. So, um, I think that to actually answer the question that a, a big part of it certainly is inherent to, you know, the person, but for most people, it's certainly, certainly possible to learn how to, uh, you know, habit build and standardize things. But oftentimes most people need a lot of help with that before they need help with anything else, like how many sets you're doing or what exercises you're doing. They just need to be able to get to the gym in the first place. Right. No, I mean, I think personal training, especially the first couple months, you're teaching someone discipline more than you are, you know, well, I mean, you should be training muscles and all that, but it like it, the big focus is just doing something consistently and making yep. time in your schedule for that. And, yeah. you know, I think we forget that a lot of the times, but I think it was Plato or Socrates, some Greek guy, in fact, way back when but he's some greek yeah yeah some greek guy you know said something profound but he just said Mm -hmm. like listen to your conscience and you'll Mm -hmm. probably find success so that little voice in your head that's like you probably shouldn't eat the whole pizza like (laughs) you know or you know you should probably go to the gym like just listen to it and you'll be successful in a lot of ways yeah and a simple solution for a lot of people you know especially in the personal training realm and in new york specifically is like Hey, just pay me a lot of money at once and like, don't waste your money. So now you have to come. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, <laughs> so that's the rationale. Right, there. Like, right? <laughs> yeah, Give me all your money at once, pay me for 50 sessions. And then you feel obligated so that you don't waste your money. Exactly. And like, you know, if people talk about all the time on social and it's clear that like these people, I've never trained anyone when they talk about how like you need to motivate your clients and like, you need to be like very emotionally involved in motivating your clients. It's like motivating is not your job. Motivating is like motivating, I think, or motivation is is a byproduct of of a passion. So you can't like, you know, could you get your client like hyped up in the moment for them to do another rep? Of course you could. But like longer term, what is more sustainable is helping them build realistic expectations for, you know, how often they can come to the gym, you know, in the first place. Like some people will start out by saying, oh, like, let's start out like four times a week. And I'm like, okay, how, like how many times previously have you, you know, have you trained in a week? And they're like, oh, and no, I've never lifted before, but like, I'm going to start with four days a week. I'm like, uh, let's just like start with two and then see how it goes. Um, so I, you know, I think that just being more realistic about not necessarily looking to motivate people and just find ways that you can make them like force them to be accountable because eventually like, and I've seen this over and over again, you know, people will get to a point where now you know, the, the whole point of a habit really is to, to not have to actually think about what you're doing, right? It's to lower the net amount of stress that you're experiencing. It's kind of like when you wake up, it's like you just start moving. You don't even know where you're going, but like you just walk into the shower because that's what you're used to doing or you're brushing your teeth because that's what you're used to doing. And eventually people get to a point where it's like they feel weird if they don't brush their teeth, right? So they feel weird if they don't go to the gym. Um, so it's a lot less about the flashy Instagram motivation stuff. And it's a lot more about just finding ways to you know, make them be accountable. And that could be, you know, that could be financial. It could be, Hey, pay me for 20 sessions, but it could be something else. You know? Right. No, definitely, man. I think that's a, a perfect place to, to end it there, man. That's a profound way to <laughs> look at training and all that. So uh, Ben, I really appreciate you coming on the show, man, and uh, taking the time out of your day. If you don't mind hit us with uh, the socials and where we can find you any products, all that good stuff. Oh, yes. I mean, I'm on Instagram, the gram and uh, first and last name with an underscore in between. That's my that's my grand uh, finale, you know, that I have for you guys today. And uh, yeah, I appreciate, you know, you having me on. It's an honor. And uh, maybe we could do this again sometime. Super, super, super good conversation. Enjoyed, uh, you know, the back and forth. Yeah, definitely, man. Yeah. Thank you again. And folks, we'll see you all in the next one. This episode is brought to you by the 
broken to beast protocol if you are broken and you feel like you are not progressing the way you should in the gym and you are wanting to get jacked and be an absolute beast you're definitely going to want to check out this program it is going to launch here in may so go and follow the at broken to beast that's the at sign broken the number two beast on instagram and find out more information about this program you're not going to want to miss it